This episode of the Renewable Energy Smart Pod is brought to you by KPMG. Despite record growth of solar and wind power, global energy-related emissions have increased. What does this mean for businesses? With a team of more than 1,400 energy professionals in the United States, KPMG is committed to delivering results for the oil and gas, chemicals, and power and utilities industries. Visit the KPMG website or click on the link in today's show notes to learn more. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and today we're going to pull back a little bit and take a wide-angle look at the global energy landscape. Nick Waith is the chief executive of the Energy Institute, and that organization recently took over the annual publishing of the Statistical Review of World Energy. The Statistical Review provides a comprehensive and free high-level view of the global energy system. It reveals how global markets are faring under pressure from things like wars and other crises. And perhaps most importantly for this podcast, the Statistical Review also tracks how the energy transition is evolving. There's a link to the most recent review in today's show notes, and Nick is here to walk us through some of the key takeaways. But before that, I just want to remind you to make sure you don't miss a couple of recent episodes of this show. On our last episode, I talked with Patrick Gruber from Givo to get his take on trends in the sustainable fuels market. And before that, I spoke with Aditya Bashyam from Bloomberg Neff to get his insights on the looming guidance from the U.S. government related to hydrogen production. That guidance stands to have a huge impact on how the hydrogen industry develops, so I think you'll appreciate Aditya's viewpoint on the best path forward. Looking ahead on this show, our next episode will focus on what's going on in the energy storage industry. Mike Whitakey, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Regulatory Affairs at Powin, is going to stop by to talk about how things like the Inflation Reduction Act are having a big impact on the energy storage market. So that's a quick recap of the past and the future of this podcast, but right now, let's focus on the present and get things started with Nick Waith from the Energy Institute. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. My guest is Nick Waith, the Chief Executive of the Energy Institute. Nick, how are you doing today? Doing great. It's really good to be here, Sean. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you join us here. We're here to talk about the statistical review of world energy that the Energy Institute puts out every year. So before we get into the report, let's talk about the Energy Institute. What do you and the team there do? Thanks, Sean. So the Energy Institute has got over 100 years of history. We're the chartered uh, professional body for people in energy based here in the UK, but global in our outlook and global in our reach. So anybody listening today can find out more about us and, and if they're interested, sign up. We've got a clear purpose, which is to create a better energy future by accelerating a just transition to net zero. And uh, we do that through helping attract professionals to the industry, bringing people together and, and working with many industry players in a very practical way to develop standards on how the industry operates. So the closest analog is probably the, in the US is probably the Society of Petroleum Engineers. Uh, but we have the, the beauty of having members from all forms of energy around the world. Okay, and we're here to talk about the Statistical Review of World Energy that you and the team publish every year. So tell our listeners a little bit more about that review and its history. 
So the Statistical Review of World Energy uh, up until this year was actually uh, run by BP. The history of the product goes back to 1952, so over 70 years of history. And actually, if you go on BP's website, you can find the very first edition of it, which was literally one sheet of paper. All it talked about was oil. It divided the world into east and west. Uh, it was typewritten with a few handwritten notes. Uh, and then over the following 70 uh, plus years, BP evolved that product to be the most timely, uh, the broadest, and fundamentally a free uh, resource for people to, to track the production, the consumption, the trade of all forms of energy. And earlier this year, we had the opportunity to take that product on, working with our partners, KPMG, Carney, and with Harriet Watt University in Scotland, who do an amazing job compiling the data for us. And we're really looking forward to seeing how we can evolve the product into the future. Okay. And so let's talk about the most recent addition. You know, what were some of the key takeaways this year? Yeah, so you know, it was a it was an incredible year to take on this product. Obviously, we were in the midst of a what we've framed as the triple energy crisis and really there are five key stories that came from this year's data. And of course, I'm talking about 2022 here. So number one was the post-COVID bounce back. So continuing the trend that we saw in 2021 with a huge pickup in demand for transportation fuel in particular, uh, but very strong regional variances, which I can, I can talk about in more detail. Secondly, the conflict in Ukraine upended previous assumptions around energy security. And so we saw unprecedented changes in trade flows, particularly of natural gas, but also of oil and coal to ensure that the lights remained on. Thirdly, we saw record deployment of renewables, uh, equivalent to 84% of net additions into the power sector. Fourthly, um, you know, despite all these big movements, energy increased by about 1% primary energy globally, but the mix of fossil fuels of coal, oil and gas remained barely dented at 82% of the overall mix. And lastly, emissions. Although emissions grew slightly slower um, than the growth in energy, we still saw emissions growing by about 0.8%. So continuing to move in the wrong direction in terms of where we're trying to get to in net zero terms. Okay, and then speaking specifically to renewables, right, for this audience, uh, you mentioned the, the growth, I think you said 82 or 84%, was it? So, yeah, so 84% of net power addition. So if you think about all of the power added globally, so last year, power grew by about 2% globally. Renewables accounted for 84% of the growth, and I'll, I'll come back to that. But in absolute terms, renewables made up about 7% of uh, primary energy, excluding hydro. And then if you add in hydro, it was around 14%. But that net addition in power is really interesting because we're getting closer and closer to 100%. And, and that is the point at which renewables are providing not only all of the new growth, but they're, they're denting into uh, existing fossil generation. So we're not quite there, but we're moving at pace. Uh, and we saw some phenomenal figures around the world in terms of you know, the pace of renewables growing in, in many geographies. Okay, so what were some of the key takeaways for renewables? You mentioned, you know, there's some phenomenal growth in regions or countries. What were some of those? So, I mean, the really big stories were China and India, um, which probably shouldn't surprise anybody, but um, both of those countries saw 20% growth in renewable generation. 
And for the first time, China saw over a 100 terawatt hour increase in solar generation alone, which was 30% higher than 2021. Uh, India saw a nearly 40% increase in solar generation with, with 30 terawatt hours of additions. So huge uptick in, in those key geographies. But also, as you look around the world, you know, virtually every country we track saw growth. Uh, North America was around 14%. And then in some countries, admittedly starting from a small base, we saw you know, countries like Oman increasing by you know, two thirds. We saw Qatar going up by 280%. Now, you know, these are starting from a, a low base, but it, this trend is happening everywhere. And going back to that sort of 84% figure, um, you know, at, at this rate, we shouldn't be surprised in future years where we, you know, we see all of the net additions coming from renewables. But then we see some of that generation going into fossil. The only thing I'd caveat that with, Sean, is that actually we also saw fossil generation in power increasing last year, making up some of the shortfalls we saw in nuclear generation, particularly in France and Germany. So then when it comes to renewables themselves, are there any specific sources, whether it's solar, wind? I mean, you mentioned hydro. What sources are you seeing the most growth or is it kind of location specific? I mean, there are location differences. I, I already talked about uh, China and India, but wind and solar are making up the vast, vast majority of the growth. Hydro was broadly flat. Uh, it grew by about 1% last year. It's, it's still a very significant part of the mix. It's, it's around half of the overall renewable energy generation. But we saw issues, uh, particularly in Europe, where climate change is, is already affecting rainfall and therefore having a pretty serious knock-on effect, particularly in, in countries like Spain, in terms of, of generation. So this is really, at the moment, a wind and solar story. The other forms of renewables that they're out there, but they're not yet making a, a material enough impact to really kind of you know hit the radar at this stage. The report also features a, a pretty lengthy section on key minerals, which is obviously important to the renewable sector and you know all kinds of battery technologies and things like that. So what trends are underway in those areas? It's always important to say that this report is a backward-looking report, so it's, an, it's not a forecast. But like every other commodity in 2022, we saw continued pressure on pricing. So, you know, for example, lithium carbonate increased by 335%, hitting a record high of $47,000 a ton. So, you know, we, we've seen the reality of, of some supply squeezes, but the, the data we show also tracks the current reserve levels. And you know, these vary across the key uh, minerals from lithium to cobalt. But we, we, you know, we, we continue to see reserve to production ratios of around you know, 50, 100 years, depending on the, on the specific mineral. But it's important to say, of course, that when production is growing so fast, you've got to keep the reserve level up with that. But at the moment, at the moment, this is largely a case of the pace of extraction being the limiting factor rather than the resources in the ground. And the other thing that's worth mentioning, of course, is that the chemistry of batteries is continuing to evolve. So what is a critical mineral today may be less critical tomorrow as new minerals play into the, the sort of chemistry makeup of batteries. But, you know, uh, you know let's be honest, this is, this is going to be a constraint. Um, we're seeing the impact of inflation coming through these commodities in the cost of offshore wind. For the first time, we've sort of seen that sort of that very dramatic cost fall each year, no longer falling, and in some instances, reversing somewhat. 
So there is pressure on the supply chain, but from a sort of you know technical viewpoint, at the moment the, the level of reserves remains healthy, and it's more of a sort of a you know a supply chain. It's getting the stuff out of the ground quick enough, rather than how much is in the ground. Okay, we talked about key minerals and wind and solar and things like that, but another key part of the renewables landscape these days is, is battery storage. So what is the Energy Institute doing on that front in terms of incorporating that into the review? So at the, at the moment, Sean, we don't track battery storage. Uh, if we did, it would be a very small level compared to the overall energy mix, um, but it's certainly something we will add into the future. And I would imagine doing that in the next one or two years. Okay, I know you mentioned that the review is backward looking, but you mentioned right at the top wind and some supply chain issues, and we're kind of seeing a lot of deals, particularly here in the US, seem like they're in jeopardy. Any insights on whether that's a global thing as well? Yeah, um, it, it is a global thing. We've um, we've seen similar things here in the UK. So in a recent um, contract for difference CFD auction here in the UK, it was a successful round overall, but offshore wind received precisely zero bids. So nobody was willing to come in at the, the maximum strike price that the government has set out, which, which is clearly a setback, but it also allows the industry to reset. It allows government to kind of review. And yeah, we were on an incredible price trajectory here in the UK. We've seen offshore wind come down from over £150 a megawatt hour. That's getting close to $200 to uh, under £40 a megawatt hour. And the reality was that's been underpinned by rapid improvements in the technology, the growth in the economies of scale of the industry, but also supported by a world of zero interest rates. We've had for you know, most of the last decade, we've been in a, in a zero interest rate world. We're clearly no longer in that world. And, and, and this business was always going to be vulnerable to a, uh, an increase in interest rates. I just don't think anybody has sort of forecast the, you know, the level of increases we've seen over the last two years. But I think this is a bump in the road, but I don't think it's a structural undermining of the sector. Um, the sector needs to consolidate to kind of think about how it drives efficiency. We may be at the point where, you know, constantly doing bigger and bigger turbines may no longer actually bring costs down. Uh, I think there's huge opportunity for standardization across the industry. Uh, but there's also a reality that, you know, global energy prices have increased as a consequence not of renewables, but of a consequence of what's been happening geopolitically. And, you know, we now need to sort of adjust and recalibrate to that. This is no different from the cycle we see in the oil and gas sector, and we always have done. I think it's just, you know, it's the first time it's happening in a materially impactful way for the renewable sector. And now a quick word from the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, KPMG. The future of energy is ever-evolving. Hydrogen, biofuels, carbon capture, and enhanced geothermal systems are all still in the early stages. As these options become scalable, we're likely to see changes in the energy landscape. KPMG experts understand the new realities of today's energy industry and can help your business prepare for the future. Visit the KPMG website or click on the link in today's show notes to learn more. And now back to my conversation with Nick Waith from the Energy Institute. And you mentioned geopolitics, kind of the, the triple crises we're dealing with. So, you know, since this report has been produced for decades, 
How have you seen geopolitics change the energy landscape in recent years? I mean, I don't want to go back too far, but um, we are seeing both domestic politics uh, and international politics weigh on supply chains. You know, here in the U.S., there's the Department of Commerce is looking into supply chain for solar panels, and there's other issues all around the world. So are countries shifting their focus to generate energy domestically or with close allies? And do you think that's just going to be a short-term solution for crises like Ukraine and, and now even, you know, the Gaza situation is is kind of cropped up? Or is that going to be kind of a long-term pivot around the world? So I, I think my answer to that is a bit of both. I mean, I think we were in a paradigm where, frankly, we had become somewhat complacent. I mean, the reality is, is that gas had flowed from Russia for the last you know, several decades. Even in the darkest days of the Cold War, the gas taps from Russia had never been turned off, or the former Soviet Union had never been turned off to, to Europe. And in 2022, uh, we saw that play out for the first time where you know, those gas taps were turned off around the middle of the year. And you know, this is a huge wake-up call for Europe. It's it's not only affected Europe, it's had knock-on effects to the rest of the world as, as gas prices increased dramatically. There was a massive rebalancing in the trade of, of liquid natural gas in particular and pipe gas. Um, so we saw huge shifts of, for example, the US LNG um, being diverted to Europe. But the knock-on effect was elsewhere in the world where gas was priced out. We saw coal picking up um, demand as the cheaper alternative to natural gas. So this is a, a major reframing of the paradigm we've had for the last three, four decades. That said, I think the notion of sort of energy independence, you know, is one needs to be careful when using that sort of term. You know, the, the US is now a net exporter of energy for many decades. It wasn't. But even with that said, the US is still massively reliant on imports and exports to make sure it has the right flows of energy. So whilst the, uh, any geography can balance on a net basis, you still have the, the exports and the imports that ensure you have all the right products uh, going to the right places. But I think, to me, this has reinforced the need to accelerate the transition. There is a, you know, an element that's being played out right now of sort of trying to use this to reinforce the role of fossil fuels, and whilst you know there is a necessity of getting energy uh, to where it's needed in Europe, and and you know energy markets have served that purpose and served it very effectively, albeit at a, a very very high price. I think when we enter a world of you know, greater renewable, greater electrification, we actually become less dependent on energy traveling around the world. It doesn't mean that imports and exports um, cease anytime soon. But in my view, we can have a world that is more affordable, is more secure, and is low carbon. And that predominantly comes from electrification and from the growth in renewables that we've seen and expect to see in the coming years and decades. Okay. Now, getting back to the report, it's lengthy. It's it's, it's an incredible resource, like you said, and we're going to have a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But someone in your position who's just, you know, you live and breathe this stuff all the time. I got to imagine that you look at something like that and you might spot something that, you know, others won't. So is there one nugget of information from the review that you found particularly interesting? I think I mean, there are many nuggets and, and many fascinating bits of information. So I'll, I'll share a couple with you, if I may, Sean. I think the first one was a surprise 
yeah, and the data was there, so it shouldn't be a surprise. But I was still surprised at the regional differences in the post-COVID bounce back. Yeah, you know, we saw you know Europe, the US, on most measures, broadly getting back to where they were in 2019 pre-COVID. China, on the other hand, because of the zero COVID restrictions, continued to see a decline, particularly in kerosene for uh, aviation, um, with a with a decline of around one third in 2022. And so 2022 saw China use roughly half the amount of kerosene it would have used pre-COVID. And so the scale of that sort of response, you know, and I mentioned before, you know, we'd seen fossil fuels sort of remain slightly lower, 82% of the mix. Had China come out of its restrictions at the same pace as the US and as Europe, we globally would have seen another million barrels or so of crude demand, and that 82% would have been somewhat higher. So I think yeah, that was the first surprise, which the data was there, but until you see the hard facts and the numbers in front of you, um, you haven't really thought about the scale of it. And, and that trend, by the way, you know, we would expect, and numbers are already out there indicating that you know, 2023 will be reversing back to the sort of pre-COVID levels in China. I think the other interesting observation I would make is that globally, you could argue that we've yet to really enter the energy transition. Mm. The reality was in 2022, despite the record growth in renewables, despite renewables making up 84% of power additions, and and actually, if you look at it on on a primary energy basis, about 80% of all the energy added to the world in 2022 came from renewables in some form or another, but there was still more growth, and that growth came from fossils, and emissions continued to grow. Emissions reached record highs in 2022. So we haven't turned the corner on emissions. That's on a global level. When you look at it, sort of country by country, it gets more nuanced. And there are some interesting sort of stories playing out in that. So for example, where I'm sitting today in the UK, actually renewables added more than the overall additions of energy. So i.e. renewables were at the margin eating into fossil generation, a tiny amount, but for last year, at least crossed that threshold. We saw, uh, for example, coal being backed out in the US, by natural gas. Um, So the energy intensity, although energy demand increased in the US, the mix of that energy was was less carbon intense than it would have been otherwise. So you've got to look at this globally because ultimately that's what matters in terms of CO2 emissions. But when you look at the regional stories, you get some quite interesting uh, stories coming out. What's the regional story looking like in Africa? Now, the reality is, is, is that Africa is still a very small part of the overall uh, global demand, and it doesn't really show up in the numbers in a material way. But population-wise, you know, it's, it's a massive population, and we know the scale of that population going out to 2050 and, and beyond. Countries like Nigeria are expected to you know, reach sort of numbers of five, 600 million people, so become massive, massive population uh, centers. And I guess the story in Africa, and I I do travel to Africa as part of my role, we've got very active members in Nigeria in particular, is on the one hand, they've got abundant renewable resources uh, and an opportunity, some would argue, to kind of leapfrog, uh, a bit like the mobile phone has done. You you don't even have landlines, you go straight to a mobile. 
So one school of thought would say you can kind of jump the whole fossil bit in a material way and go straight to renewables. On the other hand, others would argue, well, you know, the rest of the world has developed its natural resources in fossil fuels. The US reached you know, record production levels and continues to grow in terms of its fossil fuel generation. So why on earth should Africa not um, generate its, its natural fossil resources? So there's an interesting sort of paradox there. And you know, in my view, the answer will realistically lie somewhere in between those. But there's a huge opportunity for a continent like Africa to do this energy transition in a very different way without the you know being encumbered by you know the, the legacy that we have in Europe and the US in particular. Yeah, you mentioned Nigeria. I've also spoken to folks about Morocco, you know, the wind resources in Morocco. I know Namibia is working on green hydrogen. So are there any countries like that that you feel like might not be a huge player in a particular market, whether it's hydrogen or wind? but have all the potential and maybe are already laying down the foundation to get there? I think there's some really interesting, you know, you mentioned Morocco. Um, Morocco has an incredible solar resource. It has an incredible wind resource. And actually, on a daily basis and on a seasonal basis, the two are sort of counter-cyclical. So when the sun goes down, the wind comes up. And actually, there's a project that's being developed at the moment called X-Links, which is planning to bring a, a high-voltage DC cable all the way from Morocco to the UK. You know, look on your map, that's a really long cable, to provide wind and solar um, firmed up with a bit of battery uh, storage to Europe. And that project is arguing that it, it can undercut fossil generation and it can broadly compete with offshore wind. Now, you know, I, I can't tell you, you know, whether those numbers are correct. Go look at the project. But that gives you an example of the ability to kind of take energy from you know, abundant resource like Morocco and, and take it to somewhere like the UK. The other dimension is there's a lot of focus right now on green hydrogen. And, you know, a perspective out there that, you know, we, we may see the equivalent of an LNG business playing out in green hydrogen, sort of naturally resource-rich um, renewable players in Africa, um, North Africa, East Africa, West Africa, parts of the Middle East. I, th I think the, you know, and that, that may happen, but there's also the opportunity that I think global supply chains probably need to kind of move to where the energy is. So you know, does it make sense to ship uh, green hydrogen from uh, Africa to, to Europe? Or do you actually move heavy industry from Europe to Africa and, and to closer proximity to where the energy sits and you don't have to go through the conversion? So interesting dynamics playing out in that. And, and, and obviously, the sort of you know, countries that have got strong industrial bases seeking to maintain them, but also an opportunity for a whole continent like Africa to really shift how it sort of plays down the value chain. And it's not just, it's not just producing the energy, but it's also taking that into products and services. That's an interesting perspective. I've talked to so many people about bringing the energy from places like Africa, the Middle East, to where it's being consumed. But I like your perspective on like maybe relocating the consumption focus to those areas. Well, it's it's a lot easier to shift, you know, bits of steel than it is, you know, gas or electricity in whatever form it comes. So I, I think you know it's important to look at you know the whole system and I think countries need to recognize, you know, that Countries that are energy poor but um, have strong industrial bases are faced with a challenge as to whether they can be competitive and that they have strong motivations to get access to energy. 
but equally those African countries and elsewhere in the Middle East which have abundant resources should be thinking, well, how, how can I sort of not just have the energy side but, but create jobs? I mean, energy as an industry doesn't create a massive amount of jobs compared to some of the other industries out there. So there's an opportunity there for value creation. Yeah, it also seems like with ease some domestic political concerns I've heard about in terms of, you know, countries generating a bunch of green hydrogen, shipping it elsewhere, while some of their own citizens have trouble keeping the lights on, you know, and so it's kind of, that's a problem. Exactly. And, and, look, and, and, and that's the resource curse. We've seen that play out with oil and gas and, and other commodities, you know, in, in the past over many decades in many countries. Yeah, how can those countries with, you know, these renewable resources avoid the resource curse and actually you know, have something that really benefits the whole economy, the people and, and creates new exciting businesses? And now one other topic I want to discuss with you, you know, coming up, we've got COP28. A lot of folks watching for different things to take place during that annual gathering. Again, someone like you, what are you looking for from that? Yeah, well, I think COP28 is, is going to be really important. It's the global stock take. So we'll, we'll see the progress against the Paris agreements. And I think just as fundamentally, there's been a lot of debate around it's being held in a petrostate. The president is also the CEO of a large national oil company. And people often don't remember that he also played a pivotal role in the formation of Mazda, one of the world's super renewable companies. But I think it's really important to bring the world together. Today, as you saw, you know, 82% of our energy comes from coal, oil, or gas. And we need to have those industries at the table, and we need to work to decarbonize that. So you know, as much as we accelerate the growth in renewables, our ability to accelerate the decarbonization of oil and gas in particular is going to be absolutely critical uh, and as one headline, you know, and the Energy Institute is very active in how we reduce methane emissions, fugitive methane emissions from uh, oil and gas production. And that is a really material area that we can have a significant impact out to 2030. So I really hope that COP28 is successful. I'm looking forward to being there and hoping that the industry can work together to find solutions. Absolutely. All right. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, someone like you sits in a position where you can kind of see the whole board. Do you have any bold predictions for how the energy landscape might change in the next five or 10 years? And, and I asked that specifically that time frame of five to 10 years, because a lot of goals out there are set at 2030, right? And people forget, like, that's coming up pretty quick. <laughs> and yeah, so absolutely. what are you We're, seeing? <laughs> so look, I, I, as I mentioned before, that you know, the report looks backwards, not forwards. But I think, I mean, let me talk about three kind of big trends in energy that I would encourage your listeners to just pay attention to. Because on the one hand, I've, I've talked about this energy transition not really yet happening on a global level. But if let's look at the sort of energy demand in key geographies. If you look at Europe, Europe has gone past peak energy. It's been in decline for, you know, or it's been flat or in decline for much of the last decade you know, or even two decades, depending how you look at it. And so the, Europe's economy has effectively decoupled from energy. And that's a sort of key point where you can continue to grow economic growth, but your energy consumption is moving in a downward direction. I would say the US is probably at sort of plateau right now. You know, it may go above, it may go below. And, and, and that sort of played out last year through the data. But, but look at that. Countries like China are still seeing you know, significant growth in energy, India some way behind it. But all of these countries at some point 
reach a point where their economies continue to grow, but energy demand does not, as a combination of both sort of moving away from industrial uh, industries, but also energy efficiency more broadly. The second trend is around how we consume energy as consumers and, and as industries. If you look at an electric vehicle versus an ICE vehicle, an EV uses roughly a third of the energy of an internal combustion engine vehicle. If you look at a heat pump, it uses 20%, 25% of an energy of, of a fossil boiler. And so as we get these new technologies at the consumer level, those will begin to have a material impact. At the moment, the numbers are too small to really play out in the consumption data. But the IEA have come out with their recently come out with their latest forecast or, or scenarios, and, and, and one of their numbers is a, is a tenfold increase in EVs, which would get us to somewhere north of quarter of a billion EVs in the planet by 2030. That will have a material impact on demand for energy. So it's not just a displacement; it's also that you're using less energy. And then, thirdly, you know the pace of renewables. I mean. You look at that growth, renewables have roughly doubled every five or so years globally. You can sort of run that back. And although we've had a bit of a bump in the road, actually, you know, all the numbers coming through this year, and you can look at the numbers from IEA and other sources, yeah, will indicate that 2023 will be another record year for renewables. You know, it may have gone slightly slower than it would have done had interest rates stayed at 0% and had we not seen the level to inflation. But that growth is going to continue. And when you get those three trends at some point, you know, hitting the inflection points where, you know, that 84% goes over 100%, I think some of these things, and remember, you know, it's taken us a very long time to get there because global energy has continued to, to grow, you know, at faster than the pace of renewables. But at some point, you know, you come around the curve and all three of those trends begin to play out. Now, you know, does that happen by 2030? I don't know. But when we cross that point, you begin to see an acceleration happening on the energy transition. And that's what keeps me very optimistic about the future. Well, I appreciate your optimism, Nick, and I appreciate your insights today. Thank you very much. Been a real pleasure, Sean. Thank you. That's our show for today. But before we get out of here, I want to say one final thank you to the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, KPMG. Thank you all for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe or follow this show on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, please be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues. Have a great day.